is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's bow together and give thanks. God, we're grateful for your presence by your word this morning. We acknowledge your presence by your word and by your spirit. And as we join our hearts together to sing these uh, songs of praise that call us into your presence, that call us to acknowledge uh, your reign and your rule over all things, we declare uh, our allegiance to, uh, to you, O Lord, our God, to your kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We acknowledge that there are those things that battle for our heart, our attention, our mind, our spirit. And even as we assemble here, we know that there are those things that pull us in, in so many other directions. And so we take this moment to bring ourselves before you again. Would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless us as we hear it and receive it by your word and by your spirit? Would you shape and form us that we might bear your image and your likeness as your people in the world? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've reached the end of this prayer. We have spent uh, these weeks, uh, even with my hiatus last week, we've spent these weeks receiving the gift of the words that Jesus offers to us. The words that Jesus offered to his first disciples when they came to us and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John teach, uh, taught, teaches his disciples, taught his disciples, teach us to pray. And Jesus' response was, when you pray, say this. The words are uh, Jesus' own gift to us. They are Jesus' command to us. Take these words and pray them. And so here this morning, we've reached the end of that prayer. These words that we say to God that are actually, we've noted, words from God. It's my hope that we've come to not only a renewed sense of the significance of these words, of how important they are, but we've come, that we've come to a place where we fully embrace them, where whatever reservations we have or have harbored or uh, whatever has been instilled in us that might give us pause about um, the practice of routinely gathering and as we assemble in the name of Jesus, taking up this prayer, that we'll learn to embrace them as God's gift. It's my hope that we cherish these words, that we weren't learn to love them, that when we hear them, something deep inside us, re uh, uh, something resonates deep inside us. That there's a relationship that we have with these words because in many ways, they are what Jesus leaves us of his presence. If there's anything that we desperately want to cling to, it's the words that someone we love and cherish so much leaves with us. Imagine, imagine that you have the gift of one that you've loved and cherished for so long who took the time to sit down and write you a poem, or a prayer. And they hand them to you. And long after they're gone and passed from your life, wouldn't you cling to those words? Wouldn't you cherish them? My guess is you would want to come back to them over and over and over again. You'd want to take them up. You, you, you might even frame them and put them in a place where you'd see them, because every time you saw those words, you'd be reminded of the one who penned them. You'd be drawn back into that place 
of deep affection, deep gratitude, and deep love. My, my hope is, my desire for us as God's family is that we would have this conduit of relationship with Jesus, which are the words that he offers us in this prayer, an anchor to keep us in place, a ballast to keep us afloat. These words are life, etching deep within us the life of God, the presence of God. So uh, I'm going to invite us to say them together. And the words to the prayer will not appear on the screen. Ha <laughs> ha, trick, quiz. Oh, my guess is you can do this, right? You can say this prayer. And I'm going to follow uh, Dustin's lead a little bit this morning. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll say the words of the Lord's Prayer together. And as you say them, for those of you who are comfortable, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to invite you to, uh, my posture um, is to reach out. Our Father in heaven. And, and if you're comfortable, I'm going to invite you to do that. If you're not, I understand. Because not all of us are in the same place. Not all of us are wired in the same way. Um, but I want to encourage you to. Um, since you don't have a screen to look at, um, you can reach out as we say these prayers, uh, the, the words of this prayer together. So let me invite you to stand, to center yourself in this moment, and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. You know, there are things, some things that we say, and we have no idea what we are saying. For some of you, that's more true than others. That's a joke. Don't take it personally. There are some things that we say, and we have no idea the significance of what we're saying. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Maybe we don't comprehend in the moment. It's just something I say. We don't comprehend it. Or, or maybe we fail to recognize the impact of the words on, on someone who may hear them, whether they overhear us or whether we're speaking directly to them. Sometimes I think we have no idea the significance of the words that we are saying. When we say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, do we have any idea the significance, the power, the import, the, the impact of those words? For yours is the kingdom, power, and glory 
I think Jesus knows what's at stake. I think that's why he gives us these words here at the end of the prayer. I think he understands the power and the impact, the significance of these words. Kingdom, power, glory belong to you. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory. He understands what we will only come to fully understand and the significance of why we're asked to say them. Perhaps that's why these words in particular punctuate the ending of this prayer. He knows what it means to say these words because the meaning of these words have been forged in him in the wilderness from the very beginning. Remember, the gospel story goes like this, that Jesus, at a certain point in time, went out... um, to the Jordan, where John was baptizing others. And he was baptized himself by John. He approached John, and John said, whoa, 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 hang on here. And Jesus said, no. He was plunged beneath the waters of his own baptism, and he came up out of the waters. And in that moment, the voice, a voice from heaven, proclaimed over him, this is my beloved son. And in some, transla- in some uh, translations or um, gospel accounts, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, in the moment of his baptism, his identity as God's own beloved child was being spoken over him. This was a moment of identity formation in the waters of his baptism. And we also know that when Jesus then walked up out of the waters of the Jordan, the voice of God having spoken over him, Matthew says, Matthew 4, that Jesus was then led by the Spirit. In Luke, it says he was driven by the Spirit, right? Forcefully compelled by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there for 40 days in the wilderness, he was hungry. Remember this? And what happens when Jesus is there in the wilderness before he ever begins his public ministry? That's the way the ordering of this account is intended to read. Before he ever began to preach, because it's after he comes back from the wilderness that he shows up and he's handed the scroll and he begins to proclaim. The good news of God has come near. The reign of God has come near. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives. He begins to preach. Before any of that, he's led to the wilderness. Before Jesus ever touches a blind man and heals him, cures the sick, raises up the lame, before Jesus begins any of his public ministry, he's in the wilderness. His own heart, his own life being forged in the wilderness before he ever begins his public ministry. Matthew says Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert for 40 days, and it's there for 40 days that he's being prepared to embody the life and the mission that God has called him as God's sent one, God's chosen one. In other words, Jesus himself is living into the identity proclaimed over him at his baptism. 
unless we believe that this is just uh, automatic for Jesus, like he came from God, he is of God, he is God's own son, so surely he knows who he is, surely he knows what it means. I'm telling you, if you think about it in the story, it takes the wilderness for that to get worked out. What does it mean that he's God's chosen one? What does he mean that he's God's sent one? What does it mean that he's come to proclaim good news and to usher in the kingdom of God? What sort of kingdom is this? What sort of Messiah is he? That's being worked out in the wilderness. And if you follow the story of God's people from the beginning, you know that delivered up out of Egypt into a new life, across the river, the waters, like the Jordan, the waters of the Red Sea, that Israel is in the, where are they? Wilderness. And for how long is Israel in the wilderness? 40 years, you see the significance. And that it's in the wilderness for those 40 years as they wandered about that God is at work in them, forming them. What does it mean that they are God's chosen, delivered people? What does it mean that they're called to be a blessing to the world? That they are sent into the world? That's being worked out in the wilderness, right? And for Jesus, it's being worked out in the wilderness, The story of Israel, if we know the story of Israel, we know the significance of the wilderness. So there in the wilderness for 40 days, Jesus does battle with the demons. It says the devil. There are three temptations that Jesus faces in the wilderness. Remember this? After he had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew 4 says. And the devil came to him and said, here are stones. Take these stones and make them bread. The interesting thing about that temptation to me is that the devil already knows he can do it. Right? Jesus knows he can do it. Jesus doesn't say, well, I don't know how. Or I'm not sure that 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 can happen. He knows he can do it. The temptation is not to do something that he doesn't have the ability to do. The temptation is to lead Jesus into this place where he understands that his life is not of himself but comes from God. The the temptation is to assume his own self-sufficiency apart from the Father right? That's the first temptation. The second temptation is this. The demon, the devil, leads him up to the pinnacle of the temple, the high point. And he shows him, he points out, they stand shoulder to shoulder and they look out from the pinnacle of the temple and he shows him, uh, look at this vista. And then he says from that place, If you will leap off, just take this leap. You know that the angels, that God will command the angels, and they will come down, and they will um, rescue you before your foot ever touches the ground. And you know the interesting thing about that is that he's right. Jesus knows he's right. But Jesus' response, the temptation here, do something spectacular. 
They both know that from that vantage point, that from that vista, everyone will see what happens. They'll see him take that leap. They'll see angels from heaven descend and rescue him, and the rest will be history. But the deal is, the demon says, um, the deal is, you got to put God to the test. And Jesus' response is, we'll not put God to the test. Third temptation in the wilderness, as if the pinnacle of the temple wasn't a high enough vantage point, he leads him up higher and he looks out over at, from this point, all the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of these can be yours. I'll give you all of these. If you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus says, no. I won't do it. We will worship the Lord and serve him only. What I want you to understand is it's as if these, uh, this encounter in the wilderness wrestling with the devil is the backdrop to the prayer we've just said together. I want you to notice this, and I'm going to ask uh, our friends in the booth to put this, these slides up. on the. I want you to notice the connection between the wilderness, Matthew 4, Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, and the prayer that Jesus offers. Next slide. Look. In the wilderness, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus teaches us to pray, what? Give us this day our daily bread. Look, your life is not dependent upon you it is connected to the life of God. Your sufficiency is not in yourself. It wasn't for Jesus, and it's not for you. It's not for me. Do we trust that God is able in every day, in every moment, to provide more than what we need, or do we think somehow that it's up to us? Because there's a whole lot in me and a whole lot in what I see in us that, that really says I really think it's kind of up, up to us. We've got to make the right decisions. We've got to execute the plan. We've got to do everything right, or life's just going to crumble around us. The whole world's going to crumble around us. That's the temptation. Jesus says, pray, give us this day our daily bread, because if not, you're going to succumb to the temptation to think that your life is dependent upon you. Not upon the God who gives life, who gave manna in the wilderness, who brought water from the rock, who sent ravens to the prophet, bread from the widow, all of those stories in the Old Testament. God provides. Jehovah Jireh, God your provider, in this anxious moment for all of you. And it feels like a pretty anxious moment to me. The temptation is to believe that somehow, the destiny of the world is up to us. The wilderness, the prayer. Next slide. In the wilderness, the second temptation, and I'm sorry that's a little small. Hopefully you can follow along. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your worth and your value, who you are, is not determined by whatever spectacular thing you think you have to do or whatever spectacular place you think you need to arrive in life. Your value and worth is inherent in who you are because you were created by God. You are a child of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, what you can comprehend. Henry Nouwen, some of you know the work of Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen left um, a prestigious position, a, a Catholic priest and scholar taught at the most prestigious institutions, was sought to speak everywhere and left that position to go and live at a La Arc community, Daybreak, in Ontario, Canada. La Arc is a home for the severely um, physically and mentally disabled persons. And he said, I went to live there and to work there, and to serve there, and to care there, because I believe that every person, every person has value as God's beloved, regardless of what they can do or not do, regardless of who they are, or what their limitations are. They are all beloved children of God. I'm going to come to this at the end, but some of us struggle with this demon. We think that somehow we are not valuable or worthy. Lead us not into that temptation, but deliver us from evil. That which seeks to diminish and destroy the spirit within us or the spirit of others around us, lead us not into that temptation. Jump from the pinnacle of the temple and do something spectacular. You know how many preachers preach because every Sunday, they think it's their charge to jump from the pinnacle of the temple and do something spectacular so that everyone will ooh and awe. A lot of us. Third, third temptation in the wilderness. See the connection between the wilderness and the prayer? The third one. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And in the end, Jesus teaches us to pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Yours is the kingdom. Wouldn't it have been a better plan, a shortcut of sorts, <laughs> to just seal the deal right there at the beginning? Interesting thing about this one is the devil's offer to give Jesus to hand over the keys to all the kingdoms of the world 
he actually could do because you know what? They belong to him. And Jesus said, no. He said, no. A world arranged by power and control where people are possessed and manipulated and used the kingdoms of this world. If you want to play the kingdoms of this world game, then then Satan says to Jesus, I'll make that trade-off. A world where people exert their will to win, to get their way no matter what it takes, even if it requires coercion and force and violence, that's kingdoms of this world stuff. Jesus says, no, I'll not play that game. Who can control and acquire the most That's the game, and over against the allure of that kind of power, even if the end is good, right? Jesus could have struck the deal for God. Jesus said no, because everything's at stake in that decision. Whether you will see yourself, whether you will see others, whether whether you will see what it means to be in human community, in ways that reflect the kingdoms of this world, and its use of power and authority, or whether you will choose to embrace the ways of the kingdom of God, which look radically different. Jesus says, we're going to play this thing out as he comes back out of the wilderness. We're going to play this thing out. I'll not take your deal. Jesus teaches us over against the allure of this form of power, of this kind of conceptualization of kingdom and how people live and who they are. Jesus says, no, thank you, and teaches us to pray, yours, O God, is the kingdom and the power and glory. Because you know what? The allure of that temptation is not only a temptation for Jesus, but for all of us to say, well, it's just the way the world is. You have to play the game that way. Jesus said, no, no, no. In the end, pray this prayer. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And that's very different than the arrangement of power and glory in the kingdoms of this world. Are you with me? Okay. I'm telling you, this prayer we pray was forged in the wilderness, the relationship between the two. And everything is at stake in it. In the end, this business about kingdoms and power and glory mirrors what Jesus taught us to say in the beginning of the prayer. Do you remember? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your, speak church, your, your, on earth as it is in heaven. At the beginning of the prayer and then at the end of the prayer, This business about kingdom and power and glory is right before us. And if you want to know what what is so important about this kingdom, power, and glory business, so much so that Jesus has has a saying it at the beginning and at the end, then we need only to look at the way he embodies it. I'm going to share it with you this way. How are we doing on time? Okay, I'm good. Uh, I, I understand that um, at uh, the Bible class hour, we've just launched into someone's leading a study of Revelation, and I'm sorry I don't recognize who. Some of you are in that Bible class at nine. There is um, a really, really critical and important early vision in Revelation, the throne room vision in Revelation 4 and 5. 
If you haven't gotten to it in class, this is a spoiler, so sorry. Oh, the class starts next week? It's a spoiler for all of you then. <laughs> or maybe a commercial. Maybe it's a commercial for Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room vision. Okay, I'm going to do this very quickly. John says, I stepped, and there before me I saw in heaven, I saw a throne, and one seated upon the throne. And around the throne, I saw uh, 24 elders, right? 24 elders seated on thrones. 24, these are, these are intended to represent the whole witness of the people of God. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 24, the whole witness of the people of God, old and new covenants. This is the assembled. And they bow down and they worship. And then all the people are assembled there. And then around the throne, there are uh, four living creatures. And the four living creatures uh, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop saying that. In other words, the whole purpose of the living creatures is to declare God's reign, his holiness, his sovereignty, seated on the throne, sovereignty. And all of those gathered there are declaring the holiness, the sovereignty, the reign of God. And the vision says that stretching out there in front of the throne is a sea of glass as clear as crystal. Isn't that interesting? Water in the throne room. Water imagery, you may have heard me talk about before, in the beginning, always, always carries with it certain connotations of chaos. It's out of the, the deep, the depths, the abyss that bad things come. Later in Revelation, all kinds of bad things come up out of the water. In the beginning of, uh, uh, of the order of creation, it's the Spirit of God over the surface of the deep, right? And God pulls back the water to let the good creation come forth. So there is the presence of evil of chaos in the throne room of God, but it's clear as glass. So what do we have? We have the sovereignty, the reign of God, all of those, uh, the full witness of the people of God who declare God's sovereignty, these living creatures who declare God's sovereignty and reign, kingdom. And John says, um, there was one, he turned and looked, and there was one who had a scroll, but the scroll was completely sealed up with seven seals. Means it's completely sealed up. And I want to suggest to you, and as you make your way through Revelation, you can test this interpretation, but I would suggest to you that the scroll in Revelation represents the, the dilemma of how is it that God is sovereign, king, reigns over all things, and we declare God's sovereignty, and yet evil still exists in the presence of, the, of God in the throne room. It's the dilemma of the ages. You people who come here and say Jesus is Lord and our God reigns and has authority and power, that's what we've just sung together and we've declared and praised together, then if that's so, why is there so much brokenness beneath the surface in this room and outside these walls and across the ocean? Why does evil have its way if God is sovereign? It's the dilemma of the ages. And the answer to that dilemma is written on that scroll. And if we could read its contents, we would not only know the answer to that dilemma, but, but by reading the words, we would enact the resolution to that dilemma. Problem, it's all sealed up. 
And so Revelation chapter 5 says that John sees all of this and he turns and he weeps. And he weeps. Because no one is able to open the scroll. He, he bears in himself that deep groaning that is the brokenness of the whole creation and of evil and of suffering and of injustice and the world not right, off kilter, spinning out of control. And he weeps because no one can open the scroll. And then he hears a voice that says, do not weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open the scroll. That's what John says. And he turns through his tears to look. And you know what he sees in the next moment? The announcement, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turns and looks and he sees instead a lamb looking as slain. Wait a minute. The one who was going to resolve all of this? Brokenness and travail and evil and injustice. The lion of the tribe of Judah, which is the symbol for regal power. And he turns and he looks and he doesn't see that. What he sees instead is a lamb. Slaughtered lamb. The picture of vulnerability. Of sacrifice. I'm telling you, you could not pick a more opposite version of power than a lamb in juxtaposition to the lion. Lions devour lambs, right? You see what's happening in this vision? The kingdom of God over against the kingdoms of this world are embodied in the way of Jesus in a different form of power. That the power of self-giving love and vulnerability is greater than the power of death represented by the violence of the, of the lion. You see that? That in this moment, whether it's in the wilderness or every step along the way, Jesus is embodying this and what's at stake is what will turn in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because the crucifixion of Jesus says that he is the lamb and that he is showing you a form of power that is greater. The power of self-giving, vulnerable love is greater than the power of violence and coercion. Every time. And the resurrection says that that form of power has overcome death. That's what hangs in the balance in the wilderness. That's what hangs in the balance when we take up the words of this prayer. Do we believe that the power of self-giving, self-emptying love is greater than the power expressed as violence, coercion, and manipulation? Do you believe it? Because if you confess that Jesus Christ, crucified and buried, is also Jesus Christ risen, you are confessing 
that the power of love is greater than the power of evil. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours. In the wilderness and in the prayer that we pray, we stand in the battle for which kingdom we will choose to serve. We stand toe-to-toe with the tempter, with those demons that would tell you that form of power of self-giving, self-emptying love is weak. It's weak. It's naive. Jesus is weak. Jesus' way is naive. And we say, oh no. The kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, O Lord, who loved the world enough to make himself Son of the universe, God of creation, vulnerable to love to the point of death, to give life. We fix our eyes on Jesus who comes to us again and again and again in the wilderness and in the prayer. We sing as we will sing, Dustin, just here in a moment. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. What a beautiful name. The name of Jesus. What a beautiful way. I want us to be so enamored with the way of Jesus. I want us to be so infatuated with this form of power as self-giving love that it infuses every ounce of our being, shapes our consciousness, compels us forward, So the world says, that's a strange, a strange, strange group. What a beautiful name. What a beautiful way. I think there's a battle that rages for each of us. And even it rages in this moment. So I'm just going to call it out and say... Can the world get any more crazy and bent on destruction? And what do you make of that? And what do you you feel? What do you think in that moment? Because the impulse to say, we got to fix this thing or the world's going to go crazy, might also be our way of thinking that the destiny of the world is up to us. Man, I don't have the answers to any of this. It is more complex and beyond me. Except to say that sitting in that moment in the wilderness, we're called back to this notion that we're going to follow, we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus and follow in the way of Jesus no matter what. We're going to keep coming back to this. This way of self-giving, self-emptying love will compel us in, in every way. Look, if you're in a space where you feel the tension of that, you feel it sort of globally for all of us, or you feel it individually as a person, I want you to know that this community of people 
holds you in that moment, holds me in that moment, and invites us to live into a reality that flows against all of that would, that would compel us to despair, to hopelessness. All that would flow around us and swirl around us that would compel us to believe that we are the arbiters of our own destiny. No. And everything that would compel us to think and act in ways contrary to the self-emptying, self-giving love of Jesus. No. We will hold each other in these moments and we will proclaim the way and the love of Jesus. So, if today you're feeling that battle rage, those temptations, the demons come towards you and you would come and confess that and we would pray together for each other and over each other, we want to invite you to come as we receive this word today. If you would come to stand along Jesus and say that I've been so confused and messed up in my identity that I, I need to stand in the waters of baptism that declare death is not the final word and its way, but life, then we invite you to come and declare that and to receive this identity. Come and let's all stand together and proclaim. What a beautiful name, the name of Jesus.